Welcome to the Power of podcast series. In our collection, we dive into critical, thought-provoking and contemporary content to stimulate debate and dialogue, all with the aim of driving gender equality in global health. I'm Joanna Riha, a research fellow within the Gender and Health Hub at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health, based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Our last mini-series focused on conversations inspired by themes from Jessica Horn's think piece on learning for and with feminist activists to drive forward gender equality in health. Kicking off conversations in this series is a think piece authored by Zineb Tuimi Benjeloun and Joanne Sandler on the collective power for gender equality, an unfinished agenda for the UN. The UN in many ways has contributed to advancements in gender equality through the different levels that UN agencies work on. For instance, global agenda setting work, thought leadership, evidence generation, convening, technical support, through to operational functions within some agencies. And although these showcase some of the capabilities and strengths of the UN system, the full potential of the UN in terms of real collective power to advance gender equality, especially in health, is just not being realized. And the think piece authored by Zineb and Joanne really seeks to provoke critical thinking and spark honest conversations on how the UN's collective power and impact for gender equality could be enhanced. We have the absolute pleasure today of having Zineb and Joanne with us to tell us more about their think piece. So welcome Zineb, welcome Joanne. It is an absolute pleasure to have you both here with us today. We're very excited about your think piece. And before we really get into the, the discussion, it would be fantastic if I can ask you both to introduce each other, which is slightly different to some of our other episodes. But I thought given you've known each other for quite some time and co-authored this piece, it would be a fantastic way to kick off. It's a difficult job that I have here because how do I introduce Joanne? It's really difficult and do justice to her and to her lifetime <laughs> of service to gender equality and human rights. Anyway, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of Joanne is this prolific feminist. She has been working on women's human rights and gender equality in all types of organizations and with all types of people both in the United States and globally over the past 40 years. She is currently a senior associate of gender at work. And where I knew her is when she was the UNIFEM, Deputy Executive Director between 2001 and 2010. And she was the Deputy Executive Director for Policy and Program. She was also on the transition team for the creation of UN Women and then served on its first global civil society advisory group. She is currently co-chair of the board of directors of Just Associates. Joanne is a fantastic facilitator, trainer, and communicator. And we were very lucky at UNIFEM to have her as deputy executive director. She was able to instill a sense of common purpose, of course, around gender equality and human rights and building UNIFEM's knowledge base, resources, and programming and advocating very strongly for the establishment of an autonomous and strong gender equality organization within the UN system. So this is the Joanne I know, and she hasn't stopped since her retirement from the UN. She continues working with various UN and other development organizations on 
gender equality and gender justice issues. She is also a co-host of the Gender at Work podcast. Wow, Zineb, I would really like to know that person. Thank you, Zineb. And I am also very honored to introduce Zineb Tumi El-Benjelon, who is really, I was thinking about it, Zineb is a perfect blend of feminist activism and UN leadership. And she has been perfecting that blend also for decades in really a way that has brought very concrete change and benefits to women, to women's rights, to feminist organizing in the MENA region and also in other countries. Of course, I met Zineb when we were both at UNIFEM and Zineb was the regional director for North Africa for UNIFEM. Prior to that, Zineb spent many, many years working with feminist groups in Morocco and is very well recognized for some of the major changes that have happened for women in Morocco that have advanced rights. And she doesn't stop there because Zineb also knows a huge amount about how the UN functions across the system as she played a role as UN resident coordinator in Albania, in Kuwait. And now, in addition to many other things that she is doing, she's part of the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network, which is part of the Global Alliance of Women Mediators Advancing the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. And Zineb, I would say, has played a huge role in making the UN a more rights-based, feminist-friendly, and relevant organization. So a huge thank you to Zineb for all you've done. Thank you, Joanne. That's, uh, that is also a great person that I would like to meet. Thank you both. I think those are, yeah, fantastic introductions. And I think that's one of the reasons why I asked you both to, to introduce each other. Okay, so you've both co-authored this piece that we're, we're publishing at, at UNUIIGH, which focuses on the UN's role in terms of advancing gender equality, but through the lens of interagency collective power and what that can contribute and bring, as opposed to this lens of coordination. And I wondered, before we get into some of the detail that you wrote about in your think piece, I wanted to ask, you know, why did you write on this topic now? And why is it relevant, obviously within the UN, but beyond the UN as well? And if you could talk to us a little bit about that. So partly we wrote this article because of something we were doing with you. And really that was the uh, kind of immediate catalyst. We were working on this study that UNU did last year on what works in gender and health. And we interviewed scores of people from UNDP, UNFPA, UNICEF, UNAIDS, and WHO. And frankly, we were struck by how rarely anyone mentioned collaboration, cooperation, or coordination. Zineb and I spent years. Zineb, as I said, as a resident coordinator, as the person actually who is supposed to catalyze and stimulate and oversee on some level coordination. And me as someone who was actually around for the 1997 reforms that Kofi Annan rolled in and all of the mechanisms and tools that were supposed to really improve coordination across the UN, reflecting on our own experience 
we could identify more than $2 billion that were given specifically to the UN to enhance coordination, we started thinking, particularly about coordination for gender equality, where is the disconnect? Because in countless proclamations and analyses, you know, we say gender equality cannot be achieved through any individual agency or organization or even sector um, process. Other things that were happening also at the same time what we had noticed is that there were also certain advances. And we saw these advances at the global level. For example, the UN response to the COVID pandemic, the interagency joint statement, the Secretary General coming in immediately and highlighting the gender dimensions of the pandemic. The UN is coming together around this issue. So what's the reason? It poses the question, is UN reform with its strong emphasis on coordination and collaboration, is it working Is the SG's parity strategy working? The fact that we have more women, 50-50% women and men on his leadership level. The fact that resident coordinators, there's parity in their numbers across the world. I mean, what is happening? What's behind all of this? And what is the impact on gender equality? What is the impact on the ground? I mean, which is the most important thing? And so we wanted to explore this question. What is our own reflection on what impedes coordination and what could support it? We were very conscious, I think, as we wrote this and interviewed people and talked to many people, that we weren't trying to come up with answers or solutions. We were really raising questions for ourselves and for those that we consulted with because we feel that this is such a complex question. Um, the whole question of advancing gender equality is complex enough. And then the complexity of collaborative work in the United Nations for a whole host of reasons we can go into later is also deeply complex and sometimes internally contradictory. One of the reasons that this is absolutely crucial and I think important to recognize that there is a significant backlash against gender equality. There are nationalistic, misogynistic, populist leaders, and in many countries, an actual closing down of work on gender equality. In some countries, the UN isn't even able to say gender equality anymore. I mean, this is something we couldn't have imagined 10 years ago, that those hard-won negotiations on gender equality have now resulted in a moment where some countries are refusing to allow UN country teams to even utter the words that were negotiated for UN resolutions. So more than ever, we need a powerful UN country team that is able to work together to be able to continue to advance a gender equality agenda and work with willing partners at country level and at regional and global level to make sure that the promises to gender equality, the promises to advance gender equality can actually come to fruition. And just one more thing, as we were writing it, 
we learned that there is a review of the gender architecture of the United Nations, um, which will look across the system um, to try to understand what is actually the backbone, what is the scaffolding for gender equality in the United Nations. So it made our explorations around coordination and collaboration even more, we thought, even more relevant at this moment. I think Joanne already touched on this point in terms of critically looking at what has been done to date, stepping back and trying to look historically and document it. And I think that was an incredible contribution of this piece. But you also try to unpick some of the factors that really support or perhaps obstruct effective coordination from the perspective of gender equality across the UN. And I wondered actually if you could Talk to us a little bit more about some of those factors and what were the factors that you identified? In terms of the advances or the positive factors, or we identified three, basically, I think it was. The first one was the shared vision, a shared vision shared by multiple stakeholders from governments, from civil society, from the women's movement, from the private sector, etc. And with all these stakeholders having participated in constructing and crafting this shared vision. And we have multiple examples of these, the Beijing Platform for Action. We have the Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security. We have CEDAW and the agreements on gender equality targets in the SDGs. So these are examples of how the UN was able to construct a shared vision. We also have the platform, I think it's called the, the roadmap, that was constructed and agreed upon through the recent Gender Equality Forum. Those are positive factors because they construct a, a global common vision which serves everybody with globally at the regional level, at the country level, as a frame of reference for the pursuit of sustainable development programs in general and gender equality programs in, in particular. However, in these as well, and we will go into that, into this in the impediments, it, it remains difficult for gender equality advocates at the country level to negotiate budgets with either regional directors or UNCT's budgets for gender equality programs. But that's uh, another issue. The second issue, which we thought was an advance, is the pooling of uh, UN non-financial resources and capacities to establish minimum standards for performance on gender equality. So there are numerous mechanisms which exist within the UN, such as the, the, the UN Interagency Network on Women and Gender Equality at the global level or the Gender Results Group at the country level, uh, which have generated these system-wide UNCT-wide agreements which propel action for gender equality. When we interviewed staff for the UNU study, to mainstream gender equality in health-related programming, the coordinated initiatives that were mentioned multiple times were the UN system-wide action plan, the UN swap on gender equality, and the gender equality marker for budget tracking. Of course, they still felt that they were not very ambitious, but many staff were able to utilize them to negotiate uh, increased budgetary allocations for gender equality, training, positions, etc., the third advance that we were able to identify relates to the dedicated donor resources for coordinated action on gender equality. So there is no doubt that when there are resources for gender equality, things happen. 
programs are developed and things happen. In the study, in the UNU uh, study, uh, the joint program on ending female genital mutilation and child marriage was mentioned, and it was fueled by dedicated donor funds. And then we have, more recently, we have the Spotlight Initiative, which benefits from some 500 million euros, and which, I mean, is probably the first initiative we saw that really tried to address the violence against women uh, pandemic in a real manner. Of course, the initiative is ongoing. We don't have any evaluations or no evaluations are available, but from what we can see from the progress reports, it seems to be highlighting some important results. I would just add that, and I think we raised this in the article, and certainly many people have commented that There certainly have been advances in coordination and collaboration to achieve gender equality since the 90s. And certainly when it comes to health-related programming, jointness, collaboration is absolutely essential because there's almost no health issue you can deal with solely as a health issue because there are so many other factors, whether it's environment or economics or other factors. And so we think it's important to acknowledge that change has happened. And certainly the questions about why do we have to work on women's rights or why is gender equality important to other issues? We've moved. I think the whole UN system has moved on from there. Nevertheless, I think one of the continuing challenges, and it's not just a UN challenge, is this question of collaboration and partnership. It is very difficult, whether you're talking about it in the context of the UN or across movements. And so collectively, we have a lot to learn. In terms of, Zineb was focusing on kind of the push factors, what pushes collaboration. One of the other points of the article we were trying to make is that when it comes specifically to women's rights and gender equality, we have the examples, the support, and the potential partnerships with feminist movements and women's rights constituencies, who, by virtue of necessity, but also feminist principles and values, have learned a lot about collaboration and collective power. And so we thought the marrying of those two questions. What have feminists learned about that? And how can the UN in its commitment to collaboration and partnership benefit from that learning was an important question to be asking. Thanks, Joanne. I really want to come back to the points you've raised about learning from feminist civil society in a moment. I just wanted to turn to Zineb actually and ask her if she could tell us a little bit more about some of the barriers that are stopping more effective collective power from being used across the UN. Zineb? We identified something like five impediments, if you like. The first one being what we called a pay-to-play approach. So it's a competition for funding, which impedes uh, a great deal of the action. The organizations which have bigger resources, not necessarily the substantive knowledge, which will take the lead. So it's a pay-to-play approach. If you want to come in, you have to have the necessary funding, the necessary human resources, 
and administrative resources to be able to do that. And we gave the example when the UN negotiated the 500 million with the European Union for the spotlight initiatives. Now, normally, in our way of thinking, this is a coordination initiative in gender equality. We have an, a UN organization which is mandated with coordination for gender equality and which has the experience in terms of coordinating grants for violence against women. The UN Trust Fund for Violence Against Women has been uh, functioning within UN Women for the past 20 years, so the experience is there. Well, it was not lodged within UN Women. It was lodged. Another structure was created, coordination structure, and that's how it functioned. Of course, UN Women and other UN agencies benefited from uh, the funding at the country level, that's for sure. But the issue here is why did we create another coordination structure rather than strengthen the existing coordination structure? The other issue, and I think I sort of brought it in now, uh, with the first one as well, is size and status matters more than expertise. And here we have the examples of this. I think the, and uh, I think Joanne would, she lived through this, so it would be more appropriate for her to recount this story of how when you UNIFAM tried to become a member of UNAIDS and how it was told no because it was too small. At a time when it was widely recognized that the gendered impacts of the AIDS pandemic were highly recognized. So that has changed when UN Women came on board. And then, of course, there's the example of the Interagency Standing Committee, which deals with humanitarian coordination, where UN Women is not able to enter because I think the logic is that gender equality is not a life-threatening uh, issue or something to that effect, and that this committee deals with life-threatening issues. Now, I don't know if that's the real logic, but that's what came out of our interviews, and I think Joanne can elaborate on that one as well. The third one is the follow the leader. Now, of course, in terms of coordination, the logic was and still is that you need a leader. Patriarchy depends on a single story. One leader that gets to define the reality and everybody falls into line. For example, when the Delivering as One report came out in 2006, we spoke about the four ones, the one program, the one leader, the one budgetary framework, and the one office. So it's an issue of oneness, the single leader, and the single answer, which, of course, runs counter to what we have learned from feminist action of collaboration, of horizontal collaboration and accountability. The fourth impediment that we were able to identify is the high cost of coordination. We could not find in all of our research throughout the year any single evaluation or resource that could answer the following question. Could the same or improved results for gender equality have been achieved through support and partnerships that are more far-flung than restricting interagency initiatives to UN organizations. We give a lot of emphasis to coordination, which is fine, but have we measured it? Have we measured the cost effectiveness? Do we know, have we measured when it works, when it doesn't work? I mean, there are disparate sort of evaluations of programs, of things like that, but there is no one single evaluation that connects all of these and 
gives you a clear answer on the cost effectiveness of coordination. And the fifth one is the members only UN club, what we call the members only UN club, where we talk about interagency coordination and it's all about us. When did it become all about us, basically? It's all about agencies coming together, members, you know, member states. And in the area of gender equality in particular, we have forgotten where the demand for change came from. The constituency that asked for change and that led to the Beijing Platform for Action, that led to UN Security Resolution 1325, that led to CEDAW, and that's the women's movement. And so it became a huge challenge. We're coordinating amounts ourselves, and the ones concerned at best are implementing partners, which create some problems in terms of impact and the, the validity and the pertinence of the actions which are carried out. I would just add to that that I, I think all the things that Zineb has talked about attest to, and a number of the reviewers of the article made this point, attest to the fact that the UN is, you know, a colonialist, hierarchical, patriarchal structure. I mean, that is just baked in. And I think the staff of UN organizations operate between these two poles, right, of having the most visionary human rights commitments to guide their work with a structure that does not support that vision. And so in spite of that, incredible things happen and incredible partnerships develop. And I hope that one of the things, Johanna, through this podcast is it would be exciting for people to step up and offer more really positive examples of where collaboration, cooperation, and collective impact is actually happening so that we can learn from that. And I think that's one of the areas Zineb talked about that is so important is this question of learning. There's no question that there has been profound experience with collaboration coordination. And what we were searching for, and, and specifically around gender equality, what we were searching for was a deep analysis that looked across all of these different experiences, sectors, budgets, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can begin to ask that question and look at different examples in different contexts. Because obviously we're not advocating for, once again, strict UN do's and don'ts on how to collaborate and coordinate. That will never work. But what do we know? What do we, what have we learned? Even a simple question. You know, many countries have thematic groups on gender equality. They have different names. And I remember even in, in the late, in around 2009, 2010, we were trying to look at this question of sometimes those thematic groups are limited to UN agencies. And in other countries, they're called, or they used to be called extended gender thematic groups where women's rights organizations, government partners also sat on those groups. Do extended groups work better than thematic groups that are limited to the United Nations? Under what circumstances? Under In what kinds of countries? 
who are the civil society partners that actually get seats at the table, who are the ones that don't. There are so many questions we could be asking to learn about how to actually change the equation. And also, again, to add to what Zineb said, just two more factors, I think, is that donor partners and the quest for money certainly play a huge role in sometimes advancing and at other times interfering with cooperation and collaboration. And almost any staff member you talk to or organization you talk to on the ground will tell you that donors can be a powerful force for collaboration, but the search for resources and the reward for individual performance often interrupts good collaboration. The other element of that is because all UN organizations have different executive boards, different guidance and rules on administrative procedures, and this has been an issue for the resident coordinator system forever and for UN collaboration forever, actually the impediment to effective collaboration is baked into the structure of the United Nations. And this actually transcends gender equality, right? This is a much larger issue. And a question is, if the UN, having identified this over many years, cannot address these structural issues, does it make sense to keep pounding our head, you know, on the statue of coordination and collaboration when we're asking staff on the ground to overcome so many obstacles to effective collaboration. Thanks, Joanne and, and Zineb. Just on this point of learning, and I think this is really what is coming out, is that there is there is so much knowledge, rich knowledge and experience that has been amassed over the years within the UN as well as outside in feminist movements that can inform how we can move forward together in a more effective way, in a more collaborative way, with greater impact in terms of advancing gender equality. I guess I wanted to touch on this issue of learning. And I think what was so powerful about your think piece and also relates to actually the previous think piece as well is that, you know, feminist movements have a lot to teach. And actually, if we are thinking about this issue of moving beyond coordination to more collective power, actually, there are lessons to be drawn from these movements. And I wondered if you both could talk to us a little bit about that, because it's something you do highlight very much in your think piece and describe. And I think it would be really valuable for listeners. So over to you. We are proposing a framework, the feminist framework, to reassess our overall thinking. I think what we're uh, proposing is to, our five things, you know, in terms of building upon what the UN already has ingredients for collective action, which are really already there, but how to build on them, how to strengthen them, and what we say, how to reframe notions of top-down coordination. I mean, uh, this idea of top-down coordination just does not seem to be working, especially in in the area of uh, gender equality. How to reframe it into a more horizontal and synergistic uh, collective power and action. Uh, that's the first. Rethink 
notions of inclusion and leaving no one behind in the makeup of interagency groups or other mechanisms for collective action. That's the issue of, uh, we find it absolutely strange that the constituency that is most concerned and which would bring the most useful information is often not consulted. How do we reprioritize what aspects of the UN's work on gender equality require a collective approach? Maybe not everything requires these endless meetings, which require endless organization and work and in order to get done. You know, maybe some things can have a lighter touch, you know. <laughs> so we have to be able to identify what requires everybody to come together and what necessitates, you know, just uh, maybe a light touch and what just requires somebody just to be told, please go ahead and do it. We agreed. It's fine. Just go ahead and do it. The other thing is to resource the UN's backbone for gender equality and in terms of UN women and all of uh, the gender advisors, gender theme groups, gender results groups across the UN system to devise a world-class gender architecture across the United Nations. And finally, we need to renegotiate ideas about accountability. It's not only the gender advisors and the gender theme groups and UN women who are accountable for gender equality results. There are many others who are much more powerful, who have many more resources, who could be, who are already contributing, but could contribute even more to the outcomes. There was one point I think that, that's very important that, that I don't want to forget regarding accountability is in terms of um, who is the UN accountable to? Uh, we are accountable to governments. We report to governments. We report to donors. We report. But we don't, and it, especially in the area of gender equality, there is no mechanism for us to report and dialogue and discuss with our main constituency which is the women's movement. And I think that is an issue that has been raised in numerous forums, numerous occasions, and which will need to be addressed in one form or the other. So I think it's, it's all in the idea of renegotiating ideas about accountability. You know, uh, It's part of that. And who needs to be accountable and who are we accountable to needs to be rethought. Thanks, Joanne and Zineb. I think in terms of some of this reform, and I'm going to carry us on slightly just because it would be interesting to hear your opinions, in terms of this reform, because it is, I mean, as you touched on earlier, it is so deeply ingrained and, and reinforced through donor funding and a reward system that recognizes an individual as opposed to where really genuine, effective collaboration worked. How do we even begin to change some of that? And I know Gender at Work has, is it the gender action learning process or program? You know, do we need to start there and really try to change some of these deeper structures as well as the more formal processes that exist? It would be great to get your thoughts. Exactly as you say, Johanna, I think the kind of gender action learning processes, I mean, imagine if a number of UN country teams really entered into a gender action learning process. And, and let me say that I think the delivering, and, and Zineb would know delivering as one, delivering as one was a kind of action learning process. 
around what does it take to enhance coordination. But yes, there have been experiments like Delivering is one. Uh, when we were at UNIFEM, we also ran, Zineb, you'll remember this, uh, gender action learning around collaboration with gender at work at that time uh, in three countries and tried to pull out what works with collaboration. We're in a different era. We're in an, a new reality. So why can't the UN do that kind of experimentation, particularly around what works in different contexts because contexts are so different from each other to achieve collective power and collective impact. I think, you know, can we change the question to make it more aspirational, um, more focused on feminist principles and feminist values and start to learn about that rather than trying to come out with a 10-point plan or a a 10-point set of requirements that will mandate coordination, which I think at the end of the day we've seen just doesn't work, right? We have to inspire people uh, rather than instruct and demand. And so doing that in particular with a view toward what are the less visible pieces that we don't see when we when we do something often in UN terms, in bureaucratic terms, in development process terms, and we're looking at what we at Gender at Work would call the right side of the Gender at Work framework, which is what you can see, right? What are the resources that have been dedicated? What are the guidance? What's the policy? What's the law? What's the what are the rules? You see one only one part. We need to be looking at what are the attitudes, what are the behaviors, what are the cultural conceptions and preconceptions that people bring to the table, and then what are the deep structures that hold gender inequality in place, and how do we actually chip away at those to be able to create a different type of partnership, a different type of collective that is working together to change the landscape for gender equality. And so there's a lot of learning to do. What happens when we don't have to worry about resources? What happens if there are resources to advance gender equality and support aspirational ideas on gender equality? And what we can focus on are what are the capacities that many different actors from UN organizations to women's rights uh, networks and movements at different levels, at local level, at national level, at regional level, to government partners, to private sector partners, to academic partners. What can we do when we can all sit around the table together as equals, as equals, very important, right, to advance a collective aspiration on gender equality? That's what we think the UN should actually be investing in learning about. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. If you haven't already, please visit the Gender and Health Hub website, where you can find Zineb and Joanne's think piece on the collective power for gender equality and unfinished agenda for the UN. 
In the next episode, we'll have a conversation with the resident coordinator and feminist partners on the ground to hear what UN coordination looks like and means at the country level, but also, and very importantly, what UN coordination means from outside of the UN. So visit our website at www.genderhealthhub.org or visit our UNU IIGH website, which is www.iigh.unu.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is at UNU underscore IIGH or the Gender and Health Hub Twitter handle at Gender Health Hub. And send us your feedback and suggestions via email. Our email address is iigh-info at unu.edu. Thanks so much for listening and until next time. This is a podcast recording by the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. The views expressed are those of the speakers only.